Well, as one administration official told us a couple days ago, they're decapitating the entire department. President Trump, frustrated by what he sees as a failure to reduce unauthorized migration to the United States, spent this week dismantling the leadership of the nation's top domestic security agency. The FEMA director, Brock Long, resigned uh, not so long ago. And then the White House's nominee to lead ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Ron Vitello, his nomination was abruptly withdrawn last week without explanation. He resigned from his job, a guy with 30 years of experience in the Border Patrol. That was followed by Nielsen's ouster on Sunday. On Monday, the White House sacked the uh, head of the Secret Service. They have removed the number three in DHS, Claire Grady, to make room for Acting Secretary McAleenan to take over DHS. And they have just moved the head of the TSA, Transportation Security Administration, over to be the Deputy Acting Secretary at DHS. So there has been a shakeup across almost every agency in the country's principal national security department. At the end of this week, there's still speculation that others at DHS may soon be forced out as well. But why, as the nation faces significant challenges around immigration, would the president create instability in the very department that oversees immigration-related matters? Trump's latest personnel moves at DHS mean the administration has even more leadership roles filled by acting officials. And though Trump's interior secretary was confirmed Thursday, there are still many other acting officials in senior leadership positions. So what, if anything, might be lost when an administration is full of acting leaders rather than leaders confirmed by the Senate to fill those positions? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. I sought to find out the pitfalls, or maybe even the strengths, that an acting cabinet can bring to governance. But before I got there, I wanted to learn more about what led to this week's purge at DHS. I talked to Washington Post reporter Nick Miroff about the circumstances that led to the shakeup. Here at The Post, Nick reports on immigration enforcement and national security. Nielsen was John Kelly's pick to be DHS secretary. She had helped him through the confirmation process when he was nominated by Trump. She became his chief of staff at DHS. And then when he moved to the White House, she went with Kelly there. Trump always viewed her as Kelly's pick for that job and not someone that he had chosen himself. And her tenure from the beginning was pretty rocky. So things really just came to a boiling point in the last few weeks, particularly when she departed on a trip to the, the G7 in Europe. The, the White House had, had been advised of her trip, but the president was furious about what was happening at the border. They basically called her in London, and she was on the next plane back to D.C. And, um, you know, I think that was, that was pretty the beginning of the end for her. She was called to the White House for a meeting with the president on Sunday evening, and it was after that meeting that her removal was essentially announced. So the president had named Kevin McAleenan, the commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, as the acting secretary of DHS. And um, in a matter of days, Nielsen was gone. Is it clear who's in charge, who's making decisions there? It's not clear. From what I understand, acting secretary McAleenan has a lot of discretion right now 
to put people into the top positions that he would like. But we also know that the White House has the candidates it favors. And Trump advisors, especially Stephen Miller, are pushing for figures who they think will sound like the president and get on board with his agenda and his impulses to be, quote unquote, tough. Where do the policies of Nielsen and the, the Department of Homeland Security prior to this moment sort of fit in the spectrum of, of toughness when it comes to immigration policies in, in U.S. history? Well, I think what the president is is frustrated with is not the policies so much as U.S. law and the fact that the courts are telling the administration time and time again, you cannot impose executive solutions onto these problems you need to go to Congress and make a deal. Everyone will remember, of course, the zero-tolerance family separation practice that occurred last year and ended in this incredible controversy. And I think to the president, who has said just in the past few days once more that he thought that that was an effective policy, but that he had to pull it back, that symbolized perhaps a kind of, of toughness in the terms of, of, of treating people harshly, right? Taking children from their parents after they crossed the border and putting their children in shelters. That was something that really shocked the conscience of Americans and was widely repudiated, I think, across the spectrum. What we're seeing is that what amounts to what maybe looks like toughness ends up being tremendously ineffective because, as we know, the White House is now facing the biggest migration surge in 12 years, and they continue to, to try policy solutions that either don't work or are blocked by federal judges. What do we know about why Trump would dismantle so much top leadership at DHS when the country is facing such a, a crisis at the border? You know, this is a really unprecedented situation since the creation of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. U.S. leaders of both parties have really wanted to convey to the American people that the Department of Homeland Security was a, was a stable institution. It's one of the first cabinet positions that is named during a transition. And uh, the kinds of people who end up in those roles are usually senior security-minded folks that have bipartisan respect. So to do this and to do it all at one time is something that we've never seen. And I think what it reflects is the president's frustration at the situation at the border and a desire to just kind of sweep the whole place of everyone who um, had been put in there by John Kelly. And without these senior security-minded individuals, as you say, is our nation less secure? Well, I mean, what would happen if there were an attack right now on the, on the country with all this instability at the top of DHS? I think it would be hard not to look at that as, you know, as a factor. This is a, an agency that is, was created with multiple missions and counterterrorism was at the top. I mean, this was, DHS was originally meant to be um, primarily a counterterrorism agency. And what we've seen really accelerate under Trump is that it is primarily an immigration enforcement agency. Because he is so focused on the border and the, the migration dynamic, that all of the energy and attention is going to that. So is the nation less safe? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are other, the FBI and, and the NSA and other federal agencies are obviously untouched by this and, and you know, doing what they do. But it's hard to see how this hasn't hurt DHS and the different agencies that are all tasked with, with all, all these different things. Okay, so here's my final sort of sweeping question for you. Can Trump clean house at DHS and still effectively work towards an immigration solution? 
almost like, will this work? Yeah, I think that the purge at DHS has alarmed a lot of senior Republicans and the kinds of folks that he will need to work with and who will need to work with Democrats in order to make a deal. So to the extent that that their apprehensions about what's going on undermines their position vis-a-vis the Democrats, I think it does hurt his chances of getting some kind of deal because right now it looks like the White House is just sort of careening around with no particular strategy, throwing things at the wall, and doesn't appear any closer to really wanting to to make a deal or to compromise on on some of the things that that Democrats are going to want in order to give the administration the kinds of authorities it's asking for to respond to the to the crisis at the border. So Trump may face immigration-related challenges while DHS leadership is in flux, but what about the other departments of our government? The Post's Philip Bump found that more than a fifth of Trump's presidency has seen departments run by acting leaders. And this got me wondering, can a president simply choose to fill his administration with acting heads and bypass the Senate confirmation process altogether? It turns out many of these actions are guided by a statute that gives the president quite a bit of power. That's the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998. So it is the latest in a series of statutes uh, since the start of the country that provides for temporary leadership in important agency positions. That's Anne Joseph O'Connell, Stanford law professor and an expert on staffing federal agencies. She explained to me that there are default acting officials who fill in when there's a cabinet secretary vacancy. So for most agencies, for example, if the president does nothing, then the deputy secretary becomes the acting secretary by default. The act also allows the president, though, to change that default in two ways. So the first is that the president can choose someone who is Senate-confirmed to some other position in that agency or in a different agency. So when President Trump fired David Shulkin at Veterans Affairs, the default acting official would have been the deputy secretary of the VA, but instead the president turned to the Vacancies Act and chose Robert Wilkie, who had been confirmed to a position in the Defense Department. And then the second way that the president can change the default is the president can choose someone within the agency who's been there at least 90 days in the past year of the vacancy and uh, is paid at at least at a GS-15 or higher level. So when Jeff Sessions was pushed out in the Justice Department as Attorney General, President Trump turned to the Vacancies Act uh, and put in Matthew Whitaker, who had been in the agency at least 90 days and had been paid at GS-15 or higher, but had not been confirmed to any position. So that second batch of people gives the president sort of the right to appoint people who, as you say, have not been Senate confirmed, have not gone through Congress. That's right. Now, there are a couple questions regarding that. I mean, the first is whether the Vacancies Act even applies. So there was a question with regard to the Department of Justice as to whether the Vacancies Act still applied because there was a specific statute about the Justice Department and how succession should work uh, called the Attorney General Succession Act. Uh, That was also a question whether the Vacancies Act applied uh, in the Veterans Affairs example because President Trump had fired the secretary and there was a question about whether the act covers firings. So the statute might not necessarily evenly apply across all government departments. There might be different parameters applying to different departments. 
Yes. No, so, and this came up in Department of Homeland Security, too. Congress added language in 2016 that said, notwithstanding the Vacancies Act, if there's no Secretary of DHS, the deputy, or if there's no deputy, the undersecretary of management shall be the acting director. And so when President Trump announced that Secretary Nielsen was leaving and announced his pick for acting secretary, who was not the undersecretary for management, because there's no deputy secretary right now in DHS, uh, that was a problem. And so that's part of the reason why Claire Grady was pushed out, so that the DHS statute couldn't apply and he could use the Vacancies Act. So he's essentially firing someone in order to be able to hire one very specific person who, in this case, the Senate has confirmed? Or yes, that's okay. right. That's All right. right. So is it your assessment, then, that this is how the Federal Vacancies Reform Act was intended to work, to give a president enough power to appoint sort of whomever he wants within these two specific buckets? So the Vacancies Act is an important stopgap measure to staff incredibly important positions in our modern administrative state. The appointments process takes time, nominations take time, confirmations take time. But using the Vacancies Act in this way is unusual. Now, it's not unprecedented for presidents to fire people. President Carter fired four cabinet secretaries uh, in the summer after his second year. Now, often presidents manage those transitions better. So they don't have to rely on actings to the same degree. So the Defense Department has an acting secretary. Very unusual. The last time we've had an acting secretary for more than a day was when uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush's nominee was voted down uh, in 1989. But presidents have been upset with their DOD secretaries and pushed them out, but the transitions were managed better. So Secretary Aspen, uh, President Clinton wanted him out. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary Rumsfeld, President George W. Bush wanted him out. Uh, Chuck Hagel, President Obama wanted him out. But those transitions were managed, so there were no acting secretaries. Uh, the president you know, makes it clear that he wants someone new in these positions, and these people stay on until the next person uh, is confirmed. What is unusual here is the, I don't want you anymore, and I don't want you anymore right now, uh, so we're going to uh, put in acting. Let's talk a little bit more about the idea of an acting administrator or an acting secretary. How long can an administrator or a secretary be acting? Is there a time limit on how long we can have an acting secretary? It depends. Uh, it would like a complicated word problem in a math class. So if there is no nomination submitted to the Senate, an acting secretary or assistant secretary, the time limits are uh, the same under the Vacancies Act, no matter the level of the position. So you get 210 days with no nomination, uh, and you get 300 days in the first year uh, of an administration. Now, if a nomination is pending, the acting can serve throughout the pendency of that nomination. And if that nomination fails, you get an additional 210 days after the nomination fails. And then if the White House puts in a second nomination, an acting person can serve during the pendency of that entire second nomination. And if that nomination fails, you get a final 210 days. Now, we've never seen that. The longest uh, acting secretary was Rebecca Blank, who served as acting secretary of commerce. 
uh, during President Obama's administration. Are we approaching that 210-day mark with any of the current acting secretaries? No, we are not. Okay. So one big question I have is, does an acting official actually have less power than a Senate-confirmed one? Well, it depends whether you think about formal power or functional power. What's interesting about the Vacancies Act is that uh, actings have the same formal power as someone who's a confirmed or recess appointee uh, to the position. Now there's a question about functional authority, and I think this is why Max Steyer, uh, who heads the Partnership for Public Service, uh, has called acting officials uh, analogous to substitute teachers. Uh, They don't command the full authority of the classroom, uh, in his words. I think that I think that might be too strong, actually, but I do think that there's something to that. And this is somewhat ironic in a way that President Trump claims to love his actings and, and the idea is that he has more sway over his actings than he does his confirmed secretaries. But those acting secretaries may have less sway over the people in their agencies. And those are the people who carry out presidential priorities along with uh, other uh, missions of the agencies. So it's not clear, uh, even for his objectives, that the president is better off uh, with acting. So the Washington Post tracks, with the help of the Partnership for Public Service, the number of vacancies in the Trump administration. And at this point of the 717 key positions that we've identified that require Senate confirmation, more than 400 actually have confirmed officials filling those spots. The others have either no nominees or nominees awaiting confirmation. Is that an attempt by the Trump administration to sort of downsize government or reduce bloating in the government, as they might say? I don't think what's happening now is standard operating procedure. I should be clear about that. Um, I think that there are always vacancies. Uh, Sometimes there are way too many vacancies, particularly in year one and at the end of administrations. The extent of vacancies right now in the start of the third year is unprecedented. Now, I don't think this is an intentional an intentional action because these positions are key to implementing presidential priorities. Okay, so my final question for you is about sort of precedent going forward. Given the application that we've seen of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act by the current administration, is there an expectation that presidents can gain more flexibility by bypassing the Senate to ensure they have the people they want to fill the positions, to get rid of sort of all these levels of officials that would normally ascend into the position and just fire everyone until they can have room to appoint the person they want? Is some precedent being pushed by these choices that the current administration is making? about precedent that will be followed. That's how I think about precedent, right? It establishes uh, norms that will then be followed by subsequent people or establishes rules that will then be followed uh, by subsequent people. I think what these examples are going to do is put pressure on Congress to amend the Vacancies Act. So as I said before, we've had Vacancies Acts Since the start of the country, I mean, the first Vacancies Act was in 1792, and we've had a whole series. There are changes that can be made that hopefully, with new elections, will be made to the Vacancies Act to try to curb some of the strategic use that we're seeing in this administration. And I also think it's not going to be an attractive precedent because... 
To the extent that actings don't have the same functional authority, even if they possess uh, the same formal authority, and the political blowback to firing so many people, is that I think that presidents will continue uh, to want confirmed officials leading these agencies. And what we're seeing now is unprecedented and unusual and disconcerting, but hopefully that will not get rid of a very important device for modern governing. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As we mentioned, The Washington Post, in partnership with the Partnership for Public Service, tracks vacancies within the Trump administration on our website. You can find that tracker at WashingtonPost.com. And if you like this episode, as always, please remember to share it and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at Post. It's produced by the enthusiastic Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell brooks logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.